When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series, covenanting identity in the Cromwellian occupation with Dr. Mickey Brock. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Mickey Brock, Associate Professor of History at Washington and Lee University. Dr. Brock specialises in religious beliefs, demonology, and witchcraft in early modern Scotland. One of her recently published articles is Keeping the Covenant in Cromwellian Scotland, and can be found in the Scottish Historical Review. Dr. Brock is also working on an edited collection on the history of the devil, as well as a monograph on air during the tenure of Minister William Adair. She is also a co-director of the Mapping the Scottish Reformation project. More details can be found in the show notes, as well as on the website, paxbritannica.info. Dr. Mickey Brock, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So... A lot of your recent work is focused specifically on the region of Scotland of Eyre, and you make the case that it's an incredibly strong covenanting heartland. I'm curious if you have any reasons why this is. Yeah, so the first thing that I'll say for any listeners who might not know where Eyre is, Eyre is a, a port town and rural borough that is on the southwestern coast of Scotland. It's not too far from Glasgow, just to the southwest. And I, I always feel the need to specify exactly where air is, because when I tell Americans that I'm writing a book on air, studying air, they think, well, gosh, that's a big topic. It's, it's all around us. Um, but no, I am talking about the, the Scottish port city and rural borough. And it is in the southwestern part of Scotland, as I say, and that is usually considered this sort of heartland of covenanting radicalism. And Eyre is often cited as the town that exemplifies covenanting zeal, covenanting commitment, even after the sort of heyday of covenanting in Scotland has come to pass. There are a couple of reasons for this. I think the community in Eyre has sort of a longer history of radicalism. Always the community was often engaged in seeking the ire or the anger of, of various monarchs and rejecting religious policy that monarchs were proposing, various monarchs of Scotland in rebelling against whomever was the sort of central power. So there is this history of radicalism 
there. And in fact, even well before the period that I study in the mid 17th century, they had a series of fairly radical ministers who are very famous in the sort of Scottish clerical canon, people like John Welsh, who was the son-in-law of John Knox. So it has this older history of radicalism. And I think the reason it, it really becomes such a covenanting stronghold is because it kind of has the right ministers at the right time. I think one of the arguments that I, I would make and that I think is perhaps understated or understudied is that you know, these clergymen have a tremendous amount of influence on how a given community understands the covenants, understand their own, own religious commitment, and indeed understands the place of their community within Scotland across the board. Um, and the minister at the time when the covenant is administered in April of 1638, um, the head minister, the first minister is a guy called John Fergusel, who himself had actually been in some earlier uh, debate about various aspects of practices that some Scottish Presbyterians found to be too popish. Um, and the, the minister who's second in command, who then takes over as sole minister for the bulk of the 17th century, at least in the period that I study, is a guy called William Adair, um, who was also quite a devout Presbyterian and had a very sort of hardline definition of what it meant to ascribe to Presbyterian ideals and to defend Scotland's commitment to the Presbyterian faith. So I think, I think the right ministers at the right time is quite pivotal. I think also one of the reasons why Eyre ends up being a Covenantic stronghold and why Eyre is able to be quite radical, even at periods when the rest of Scotland is either moving away from a hardline Covenanting identity or you know, a lot of Scotland didn't even ever fully commit to, to hardline covenanting identity is because air is so close to Ireland. And, and the upshot of that is, is that during periods of intensity or prosecution or the need basically to just have an escape valve, there's a lot of travel to the northern parts of Ireland that gives some cover, some space for any of these more radical ministers within the Southwest. Also, Ireland becomes a testing ground for some of their radical ideas. You have when William Adair, for example, administering the Solemn League and Covenant in Ireland in the mid 1640s. So he's able in some ways to beef up his radical chops abroad. Um, so I think all of those things are part of that story of why Adair itself is such a, a devoutly covenanting place for a long time, um, more so I would argue than perhaps a lot of Scotland. So was it because of this strong tendency towards radicalism and, and, and the covenanters that made you want to study air or were there more practical reasons like availability of sources or, yeah. or anything along those lines? So that's a great question. So I got interested in air. I mean, why, why is any American interested in some random, <laughs> random Scottish city, you know, that's not Edinburgh? Um, or St. Andrews, which is where usually Americans are interested in. And I mean, the, the real reason is actually the source material. So I um, was working on what I thought was going to be my second book project about sermon going in early modern Scotland. And I was looking through some of the Kirk Session records for evidence of sermon going practices and what it meant for ordinary Scots to go to Kirk regularly and hear these sermons. And in just looking through various Kirk sessions and knowing that Eyre had very good records, I came across what I think is a fascinating episode in Scotland's history and one that's not as well known as it might be. And that was the story of the plague coming to Eyre in 1647. Um, the plague had been ravaging you know, parts of the west coast of Scotland for a couple of years there in the 1640s, but it 
came to air in the, the autumn of 1647. And the minister, William Adair, who I mentioned, was able to convince the congregation to have this mass confession of their sins in order to remove the wrath of God as they saw it. And so I read this case in the Kirk Session records and just thought, gosh, this is really interesting. I've never, I've never seen quite this corporate um, communal reaction to something like plague. Uh, in, in, in the course of, of 17th century Britain. So let me dig a bit deeper. And as I did, I started to think about the way covenanting and the sense of communal responsibility that was engendered by the covenant was part of that community's response to something like plague. So it was that one case, that little story that to me was so interesting that I was like, I should just write a book on this place. So it really got me diving deep. And recently you put out an article on air. I'm curious, can you place that within the historiography at the, at the moment? Yeah, sure. So, so there has been, I mean, early modern Scottish history is just, I think it's such an exciting time to be working on these topics. There's so much phenomenal work being done by, by early career researchers, by PhD students. And so I, my first book was on belief in the devil. So I've kind of come to these historiographies of covenanting a bit, a bit later than others. And I've just, I've learned so much from, from so many people. So I, I have to sort of say that first and foremost. Um, my real interest in covenanting and covenanter identity, which we can actually talk about what that actually is and, and to the extent that it actually exists, is born out of my interest in community um, and how reformed Protestant communities in particular fashioned themselves in moments of crisis in relationship to other communities in terms of their personal faith and so forth. And that, I think that discussion of the ways in which communities responded to the covenant and what the covenants actually did in terms of a community is something that needs to be increasingly um, discussed within the literature. So I'm not as interested in covenanting at the sort of high politics level. Um, I'm much more interested in what it meant for your ordinary sort of a uh, Scottish person to stand before God and congregation, swear the covenant, um, and then have many of their own rituals and beliefs sort of reinterpreted through the covenanting lens. And I think um, that is the, the fundamental question that I'm interested in, right? How does covenanting become kind of a lens through which people in communities like Air make sense of their obligations and, and struggles as reformed Protestants? So I'm interested, you bring up the idea of covenanting identity and, and how that's defined. Can you define covenanting identity? Is it something that can be nailed down or is it far more dependent on who is personally ascribing to the covenant? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really critical to note is that covenanting as a movement, as an identity, as a revolution, if we want to call it that, contains multitudes. And, and to me, that is to say there's not one fixed definition of a covenanter, partially because the covenants themselves, right, both the National Covenant in 1638 and the Solemn League Covenant in 1643 are suffuse with ambiguities and personally so, right? They, particularly the, the National Covenant was written in a way to get a certain level of buy-in. It leaves a lot open to interpretation. And so I think that's one of the reasons actually covenanting identity is so strong in air because it's so malleable. Right. Certainly there were people who had hardline interpretations of the covenants and certainly the ministers at air did. But for ordinary people, covenanting was used as a way to reinterpret the rituals, the norms, the behaviors, the practices that were a fundamental part of their identity as Protestant Scots. So one of the things that I'm quite interested in is 
seeing covenanting identity as a way that, um, for example, in a community like AIR, all of the things that were such a part of the culture of Protestantism, to use Margot Todd's phrase, in AIR, get repackaged as part of covenanting. So for example, when there's deviance like drunkenness or fornication or you know, breaking the Sabbath, whatever, in air you often see the ministers and members of the community speaking about how these sins were the breach of covenant. So to me, covenanting identity is about having that lens through which to view your religious identity. It's not an exclusive way to view it. It's often coterminous with political allegiances, obviously with, with you know, maybe your family obligations, your sense of local or regional or national identity, but it is this, um, this interpretive lens that I think is very pervasive in certain parts of Scotland. So bringing it back to your, your recent article, which is focused on the Cromwellian occupation of air, I wonder, can you expand on how the Covenanters and the Scots more generally viewed events like the Battle of Dunbar, the Battle of Worcester, uh, which were, of course, terrible defeats for the Covenanters and the subsequent occupation. How did they see these? Your article makes the case that they viewed these events as signs or symbols of God's displeasure. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, I mean, I, one thing that I think is really worth noting and that was oft remarked upon at, at the time was that the Battle of, of Dunbar is September 3rd, 1650, and the Battle at Worcester is September 3rd, 1651. So they're on the same day a year apart, which is, of course, immediately interpreted as this sort of providential sign of divine punishment, divine plan to sort of go after Scots who were seen to have deviated from the godly path. And there was a lot of disagreement at the time of these battles between the, the covenanters who were essentially running the country in certain ways. There are fractures and fissures within that movement about just how radical to be, just how hardline to be, just how much to cooperate with Charles II, all of these sorts of debates. And there were also, I should say, debates about how to cooperate, if at all, with, with Charles I, his father as well. So, so these defeats happen at a moment when the, the Kirk party, as folks often call it, the sort of hardline covenanters who have a lot of control, are totally fractured and are there's so much infighting, they're sort of falling apart. So all of this, this massive defeat, this fighting gets packaged as, okay, God is tremendously angry at us. We disagree perhaps what he's so angry about, but this is punishment. And really from 1651 on when you know Cromwell marches into Scotland and by you know the early part of 1652 occupies the bulk of the country. This is, is psychologically crushing not only because covenanters of all stripes begin to wonder to what extent they themselves and their communities have deviated from the godly path, but moreover, Scotland was not a country that it was especially used to being conquered, right? I mean, this is in fact one of the, the sort of rhetorical tropes that you often hear about Scotland, that it's sort of this unconquered place, right? The Romans didn't do it and so forth, this worth of independence, all of that. Um, and I do think that weighed heavy on the minds of covenanters and you know, ordinary people from across the social spectrum that they were essentially a country under occupation for a decade. So this is, you know, of course, a time where everything is seen through this providential lens. And it's very clear that that there is almost this apocalyptic vision of what had happened after Dunbar and Worcester and, and the occupation itself. So early on, the Covenanter armies had amazing success against particularly the, the royalist forces in the south. The reversal of fortune that came with Dunbar and Worcester and then the occupation, did that act as a, as a kind of more recent 
example of how great things were and how massively they had turned around. Did that play a part in, in this idea that God had withdrawn his favor? Yes, I, I think that's certainly the case. Um, and, you know, as part of that, I think also the fact that there had been so many debates at the end of the 1640s about how to conduct, how the army ought to conduct its business with relation to either Charles I and then after his, his beheading, um, after his, with his son, or with the, the, the new model army and the English forces, the parliamentary forces in England, there were tons of debates about the extent to which those relationships ought to be developed and how much cooperation could be trusted and who actually was appropriate to be part of the, the covenanting movement. There was various attempts, for example, to purge those people from the army who had initially wanted to support or engage with Charles I too much. So there's constantly these sort of purity tests that are happening within the covenanting army. And that really weakens the, the covenanters, the more radical covenanters across the board. And they certainly see that disunity itself, right, as a potential sign of God removing his favor, or even a sign of the devil's influence in, in their own sort of sphere, right, and tempting people away from, from the truth, too. So, so I think it's important to see Dunbar and Worcester as sort of compounding factors, right? They, they're hap these massive defeats happen at a time a year apart when the covenanting regime is already under tremendous stress, tremendous tension. And, and you know, once, once Scotland itself is occupied, it's like, all right, you know, God, God is clearly pissed and we need to sort of, you know, get our, get our own house in order. Although they don't get their own house in order, I should say. <laughs> they continue to be very fractured and have a lot of divisions through the course of the early 1650s. Not in air itself, air itself is quite unified. Um, but there, there continue to be divisions, key divisions within the covenanting movement in the early part of the 1650s, which is why there's no, you know, organized, well-mounted opposition to the Cromwellian occupation. That's really interesting. Did the, they were so divided before these military defeats. I was curious whether military defeats had sort of catalyzed reunion or, or not. And you're saying that it was, it was not the case that they then came back together. Yeah, so I think this is interesting. I think it catalyzes union in opposition to Cromwell's occupation, right? Even those more radical covenanters who had accepted at various points help from the new model army, even they were not happy with, with the Cromwellian invasion, not, not least because there is sort of this sense that Cromwell had been a key architect of the regicide. And of course, it was not for Cromwell to decide what should be done with God's anointed, right? Even those, even those covenanters who really hated Charles I were not really willing to go that far. There was a clear degree of unity and opposition to Cromwell, but that opposition itself was not able to be organized or cohesively managed because of ongoing debates about how much to work with Charles II, right? So in some ways, the, the issue that determines their inability to resist Cromwell's occupation is ongoing debates within the covenanting movement about how to engage with a monarchy that some who are at the very um, more hardline side of the covenanting regime just feel is untenable, right? We can't engage with an ungodly king. That's this constant refrain. While others who are a bit more pragmatic are willing to do so. That continues to be a major issue, even though there might be unified sort of opposition to or rejection of Cromwell's occupation. Now, eventually, some of these covenanters do cooperate with the Cromwellian regime. But I think actually, a lot of that is out of necessity and pragmatism, rather than some ideological unity or, or thinking of Cromwell as something a positive force in Scotland. 
that's interesting because in your article you do state that the leaders of the occupation they view the kirk they don't want to interfere too much because they view the kirk as a as a source of stability which is useful in an occupation so i'm curious how often was the kirk actually used to to reinforce submission and on the opposite side how often was the kirk a source of resistance yeah this is this is a really good question so to sort of clarify what happens um, during the Cromwellian, Cromwellian occupation is that a lot of the duties of sort of secular governance within Scotland get taken over by the Cromwellian regime, right? It essentially is government by garrison. Um, I think martial law might be too strong, particularly because there was a real attempt by Cromwell and his men to, I wouldn't say treat the Scots with velvet gloves, that's certainly far too strong, but it wasn't anything resembling what happened, like what happens in Ireland. Um, during the 1650s. So the Cromwellian regime lets these Kirk sessions go about trying to weed out fornication and other sorts of sins, drunkenness, whatever it might be, without too much oversight. So it's not as if the Kirk is explicitly cooperating with the Cromwellian regime or that the Cromwellian regime is directing what happens at the Kirk. It's rather that the Cromwell's men in Scotland let the Kirk sessions by and large go on about their business because it behooves the occupiers to have the Scots behaving, um, not least because it also helps to prevent, at least theoretically, although not in practice, bad behavior of the English soldiers who are in Scotland. I would describe it as sort of this uneasy coexistence with certain moments of cooperation. So sometimes, for example, you get ministers and heir, minister Adair, I should say in particular, reaching out to someone who is a soldier or who is at the head of the garrison that's at heir and saying, hey, we know one of our people was, you know, acting around with one of your people and we need to sort of get this sorted out. Or one of our women is pregnant by one of your soldiers. Is he a married man? How do we prosecute this case? So sometimes there is collaboration in that sense. And sometimes Scots are punished by the, the court martial themselves. They get in trouble by carousing with the soldier and are sometimes hauled off to the bodies of discipline within Cromwell's army. But in general, I would argue that these two forces the Kirk session and then the sort of occupying army operate in tandem in sort of parallel tracks to kind of try and keep certain sorts of discipline. So what could bring a, a Scot in front of the Kirk session, say in air, what could bring them in front of that to be disciplined? And how did military occupation affect these? Did it increase the rate that people would be brought forwards? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Um, one thing that I'll say is that it's really hard to do any statistical analysis of the Kirk session records across the board in Scotland, but even in a place like Air with really good records, because of the fact that whoever the, the clerk is changes, right? So they may be more likely to write things down in detail versus someone else. Not all the records are equally legible. Not all the records are fully extant, although Air does have very, very good records. So I, I don't want to say definitively that there's a rise in crimes because I don't think we have any sort of test case, right? No, no sort of constant that we can look at. However, I think it's clear that there is greater, a greater impulse on the part of the Kirk session and air to go and root out 
sin to go and root out crime because they're so anxious about divine wrath, which the occupation is clearly a manifestation of, and of, and of keeping their community together amid all of these strangers living in their midst. So you have a lot of cases coming before the Kirk session, which is charged with the ecclesiastical moral discipline of the community in the 1650s that involved the, the usual things, right? Drunkenness, Sabbath breaking, that sort of thing. But the interesting ingredient, the special, the sort of special sauce, I guess, if you want to put it that way, um, in it's a sort of cheeky Nando sauce. I don't ever understand that reference. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, the, 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 the most interesting component is that a lot of these cases that come before the Kirk session involve local people in air misbehaving alongside or with members of the army. So in particular, women in air fornicating with English soldiers. And that becomes just a huge thorn in the side of, of the Kirk session. And they're really, really anxious about controlling this behavior. So I don't know if it's that cases of fornication themselves have just exploded or that the Kirk session is really seeking them out to a greater degree. But regardless, they're appearing in the session's records a lot. That is a really interesting point that Yes, if they're concerned that their, the moral failings of their community have brought disaster, they're going to start trying to clamp down on that at the same time that there's actually more potential for those same moral failings. So that exactly that must be very difficult to try and pass them. Yeah, so I mean, for me, methodologically, I'm not sure I find it useful to say that the Scots are having more sex than ever you know, <laughs> during, during this period because we can't definitively prove that, right? We only know what comes... To the, to the session records. But what I can say is that more cases are appearing before the session in the 1650s than did in the 1630s and 1640s or in the 1660s or 1670s. I've read the cases of air, the, the session records from air from all of those decades. So there are a greater number, but I don't know if the greater number of cases is corollary to an unusual number of incidents or just as overzealous um, session. Although I will say they were always pretty zealous in air, so there's probably an uptick, but I'm, I'm always hesitant to make those claims. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Now, something you do highlight in your work that's, that's very important is the all-male nature of the Kirk Session. The people who are making up these, these courts were always men, and this naturally led to quite a lot of bias against the the women parishioners. Now I'm curious, how did this bias manifest? Well, I should say first that this is actually a fairly contentious historiographical question, mm -hmm. because I think it is true that the Kirk did 
try to mete out discipline in some equal fashion, right? They did, if you look, for example, at punishments for cases of fornication, often, although not always, men and women are punished in very similar ways, right? Public repentance being the most common thing. Um, Women are more likely to be banished for repeated crimes, but in general, some of the punishments look similar. And so that has led some people to say that Scottish Kirk Session was operating as a gender-blind institution. Now, my argument about that is because it's it's entirely run by men, the Kirk administrators are entirely male, that there's no way, I mean, just process-wise, there's no way it could be gender-blind. That, that's a sheer impossibility. And I also think, too, it's quite apparent that in times of crisis, right, such as the occupation, there's greater anxiety about controlling and policing female behavior. Um, you also see this, you know, at, at sort of moments where the witch hunts are mm. really heating up. And I actually don't think it's a coincidence that m- some of Scotland's major witch hunts bookend the Cromwellian occupation. Um, so you have some pretty intense hunts uh, right around the turn, beginning of the 1650s and the 1640s, beginning of 1650s, and then Scotland's biggest hunt ever, right, at the beginning of the Restoration. And it is worth sort of asking, right, does that have anything to do with anxiety about female behavior during sort of the chaos of the civil wars and then the occupation? Um, I think probably one of the bigger ways that the gender bias of the session might manifest itself is just lack of trust of, of female testimony. There is often the case where a woman is making a claim about her pregnancy or about what happened to her in the case of sexual assault. And her word is not valued in the same way that the, the man's is, be it whether he's the actual father or is he actually married or did he actually do this thing that she's claiming. Um, there's a lot more trust placed into what men are saying. So even if some of the outcomes of specific punishments look similar, that should not lead us to think that the process itself and the institution itself was gender blind. Now, you mentioned that it's very hard to have any data points with records like these. Is there a parity between punishments towards male or female parishioners? Is that something we can see in the records? or is Yeah, that-, that that is something we can see in the records. And and in air in the 1650s, women are being called before the court at just much, much higher numbers than men. Now, some might say, well, that's just logistical, right? Because there are a bunch of strange men like roaming the streets of air who are stationed at the Citadel there, Cromwell Citadel there. But I also think it's on, and this gets back to the methodological point, I think it's a part of the session being anxious about women's bodies, which can literally embody the disorder of occupation, right? Mm. Through pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy. Um, so I, I would, there are a lot of other cases, Margot Todd has written about this some, where there does seem to be some parity in terms of, of how many fornicators are uh, men, how many are women, what their punishments look like. But in this moment of crisis, my argument is certainly that the, the focus on women's bodies and women as pot- potential vectors of disorder is really augmented. In a more practical question, how did the Kirk Sessions operate? What was the extent of their jurisdiction? Were they able to judge the occupying forces, the, the Cromwellian soldiers, because they also brought their own people in service? There were Scots in service to the soldiers, could they be judged by a Kirk Session in there? Did a Kirk Session have jurisdiction over another Kirk Session's parishioners? Yeah, this is this is a great question. And it's something that actually, so in general, the Cromwellian occupation and the relationship between the Cromwellian soldiers there and the ordinary Scots on the ground, that is 
in my view, sort of wildly understudied. We've, we've paid a lot of attention to the civil wars. We've paid a lot, a lot of attention to the restoration and the 1650s just kind of just hangs out there, even though it is, of course, absolutely pivotal in a whole host of ways for, for early modern Scotland. So I, I just say that to say, I think there's a lot more that we need to learn about the cooperation between Kirk Sessions and authorities from the Cromwellian army and the extent to which those jurisdictions might be overlapping. There have been, has been some really good work done on this. Susan Gillander's PhD thesis, for example, talks a lot about the cooperation between Cromwell's forces and magistrates town councils in, in the Scottish boroughs, but more, more needs to be done. So on a practical level, in general, I have not found any cases at all of the Kirk session disciplining a Cromwellian soldier. Now, I have seen Cromwellian soldiers who want to marry a local heir woman, right? They they either they are either get her pregnant or they're caught in fornication or they just like fall in love and don't get in trouble at all. And then at that point, the Cromwellian soldier, I've, there are a couple of cases where they go to the Kirk session and they say, I'd like to marry this person. And the session says, great, we need you to lay down your arms. We need you to swear the covenant. We need you to become a full and operative member of this community. So in those cases, of course, then there is some degree of overlap. There also, as I mentioned before, is cooperation between leaders at the Cromwellian Citadel and leaders of the Kirk Session in terms of rooting out problems that involve parties from both jurisdictions. But in general, in general, the, the disciplinary issues of the soldiers that are, are there with Cromwell's army are dealt with by the English court-martial in sometimes tremendously harsh ways. What is interesting is the cases that I found of Scottish women who might be caught near the citadel, you know, uh, canoodling with a with a soldier, getting hauled before the English court martial, and there are actually a couple examples of Scottish women being thrown in the the local um, Cromwellian jail in air and having to stay there for a week or two or whatever. And I've not actually seen any instances of the Kirk Sessions saying, hey, that's our girl. Like, no, we, <laughs> we're in charge of that. Partially because what choice did they have? Right? They are fundamentally an occupied people. And, and mm -hmm. in some ways, keeping the peace was absolutely critical. I hope that answers your question. It absolutely does. <laughs> I was going to ask how the new model army went about policing its own men, because these were, after all, they're meant to be the saints, the, the godly, but they're also yes. men on campaign in occupation. Indeed. One would imagine that they, they make some mistakes. Yes, as, as I say somewhere in, in something that I've written about it, they behave as if they're either situationally or actually without wives. So there are a lot of them <laughs> who may well be married, but you know, they're, um, no, usually they get punished really harshly for some of their behavior with Scottish women. In fact, there are cases in, um, of court martial records in Dundee. I mean, they're very explicit, explicit rules, like don't sleep with the people we're occupying, right? Don't do that. Mm -hmm. But of course they do, as you, as you suggest. Um, and in Dundee, and you find this in Air and elsewhere, there are examples of Cromwellian soldiers being sort of publicly led and whipped through the streets as a way to sort of shame them and punish them, right? So it's actually really harsh. You think of covenant or discipline as really intense, but uh, certainly the, the Cromwellian army did not mess around with that. Um, there were also lots of rules about uh, English soldiers needed to stay, you know, within a close radius of their garrison. They had curfews, all of that stuff. But the problem was the real tricky thing is a lot of these soldiers are billeted in the homes of Scots, right? So you have all of these, these they're literally strange bedfellows at times. <laughs> um, so it, it creates, creates all of this sort of domestic disorder and dislocation on top of all of the other anxieties that the community is going through.
I think there's a there's a quote I I took a note from your article where the Englishmen are brought before the Kirk session to ask provide testimony, and they say that if they're going to stay in the town, they need to burn the house they were staying in because it was just such a sinful place. <laughs> Yes, yeah, that that's sort of a that's sort of a great story, and one of the many examples where Scots are caught partying um, with you know a bunch of English soldiers essentially, <laughs> and they all sort of get in trouble. You know that story is great because there's also um, in it this sort of example of you know there's a apparently I think there was a fiddle player and he got so drunk he fell down and you know everything's a mess. And that was in the early days of occupation. I, I think that's right at the beginning of 1652, and. That was that year in particular, 1652 and into the early part of 1653, really shows the Kirk Session and Air just trying to get their arms around the presence of all of these strangers who are billeted with local residents, you know, roaming the streets and posing all, posing all of these problems for the discipline and the unity, right? And again, this gets back to something that people are worried about at the time mm. anyway um, in Air. So it, it's a real mess. I mean, you know, there are lots of examples too, which I think is also interesting, although less exciting, of Scottish women who don't make it to sermon, right? They're supposed to go hear the sermon that's incredibly important for the community. And, you know, they get stuck at home because there are soldiers staying at their house who are demanding meat, demanding drink, and not letting them go. Now, in some cases, that may be a convenient excuse. Oh, I couldn't come to sermon. I was too busy, like, cooking <laughs> for the soldier. But I think in general, right, every evidence seems to be that that it was such an important part of communal identity to be part of this sermon going and part of faith that that their religious life was impeded as well by by the presence of these soldiers. Now, we've talked a bit about how the Kirk session is doing its best to try and keep the peace between the occupation forces and, and their parishioners, while also, you know, being the moral police. But what about what happened when there were case when there was antagonism between the occupation forces and some other faction within the Scottish polity that wasn't subject to the Kirk session. You discuss moss troopers, which is a term I hadn't come across before. Yeah. So one of the things that is really important to understand about the Cromwellian occupation is it's bringing people through Scottish communities like air that are not necessarily part of the Cromwellian army, or that might be Irish, Welsh, or Scottish soldiers who are in service of the Cromwellian forces, or these sort of border marauders um, like the Moss Troopers who were always taking advantage in some ways of the instability of the civil the civil wars and the occupation um, through these communities. So, so I've often described the occupation as the time of all of these layered dislocations and layered disorders. And it's not an easy bifurcation between Cromwell's men and the, you know, the, the Scottish community. There are mm. also, of course, you know, wives and partners of um, of, Scot of uh, Cromwellian soldiers who end up coming with them, who end up traveling with them. Sometimes there are Scottish women who follow the army, who for some romantic relationship or perhaps a business arrangement, if you will, come to air with the Cromwellian soldiers. And then the Kirk really doesn't know how to discipline them because they're Scottish, right? So they fall under the purview of Kirk discipline writ large, right? You asked earlier if sessions had the ability to discipline the prisoners from other sessions. I mean, ideally, you would do repentance and, and um, apologize for your sin in your home parish. But if you were away, right, sometimes there was this attempt to discipline Scots elsewhere, but it just becomes this whole mess for the, the Kirk session and air. And at times they kind of, you know, wipe their hands of it and say, 
we can't discipline these people. They're none of ours. That's the term they sometimes use for when one of these Scottish women or Scottish men from another part of Scotland who happens to be an heir violates the promises that they made as part of the covenant to behave well, right? The session says, you know what, we've got our hands full. We can't deal with it. Can we see similarities with the way that the Kirk session maintained order in air? Is that similar throughout Scotland or purely with other urban centers like like Glasgow or Edinburgh? Yeah, this is this is actually a, a great question, right? So, I mean, that's the issue of anybody who's engaged in a micro historical study, which fundamentally I am. Is this place an exception? Is it the rule? How much can you, as you say, extrapolate from it? Um, so I'll say with regard to this constant issue that the Kirk session is dealing with of its women sleeping with um, Cromwellian soldiers. This is a problem that you see in other parts of Scotland where there are large numbers of Cromwellian soldiers quartered, right, stationed um, for any mm -hmm. given amount of time. So, so you see in Elgin, there's a lot of this going on in Dundee, um, Burnt Island, hope that's how you say it. Burnt Island <laughs> has, has a lot of this going on. Um, as we joked earlier, some Scottish words are designed to trick people who are Scottish. Um, no, but so so in any places where there's a large troop presence, right, there is going to be this, this potential, right, for cases of fornication or adultery or whatever it might be between Scottish women and the occupying forces. So that is not unique. I'm actually writing an article right now on um, the experiences of Scottish women during the Cromwellian occupation across Scotland, so not just focused in air. Mm -hmm. I think what makes air potentially unique um, and I say potentially because I haven't done a thorough study of the grapplings with the presence of, of the army in other places, is that the air was home to the largest citadel, right? Largest of Cromwell's citadels. There were five citadels um, in Scotland during the 1650s, and air has the largest one. And partially that's because, you know, Cromwell wants to keep an eye on the zealous covenanters of the area who may, may become a problem, but more importantly, actually, that there was anxiety about um, disorder coming from Ireland, right? So there was a need to be stationed um, on the southwestern coast. So in sheer number, air is also grappling with just a really intense presence of, of soldiers. And I think that air is probably, and again, I haven't done enough comparative work to say this definitively, but it's probably unique as well in framing the various levels of disorder and misbehavior and, and sin in the community as explicit violations of the covenants because of that covenanting identity that had been really solidified over the course of a range of crises in the 1640s. So I, I think that is also going to make air in some ways fairly um, unique. Also, there has been some interesting work done um, by Scott Spurlock and some others about whether or not the Cromwellian forces in air in particular brought with them this whole range of different uh, forms of dissenting Protestantism, right? So Baptist and, you know, do you have any Quakers in there? Do you have ranchers? <laughs> what do you have going on along with your regular old, you know, Puritans and dependents, so forth? Um, so in air, there may have been additional pressure for the Kirk session to be really, really zealous about enforcing behavior and trying to insist on unity, especially unity around the covenants in the face of these competing religious factions. So that may also make air somewhat unique. So I would say the experiences of Scottish women, you can largely extrapolate in other parts of Scotland, but because the covenanting zeal was so intense at air, the response by the session may have been augmented, not least because they had home to the largest citadel. What a fantastic answer. My second to last question, which is one I've asked everyone, is 
Do you think there was a Scottish revolution? Do I think there was a Scottish revolution? You know, it's funny before we had this call and I, you know, was anticipating maybe this question would be asked, talking to my friends who study both the American and French revolution and just how, how sort of prominent these sort of questions are. And I think it matters because the idea of revolution has been uh, very prominent in historiography. Um, now, my answer, of course, is it depends on how you define re revolution and for whom, <laughs> right? Um, which is a very obvious uh, thing to say. I mean, my more seriously though, my answer is yes, I think there was, um, but it was very uneven. It wasn't consistent. Um, I think the biggest thing that was revolutionary about um, about the sort of covenanting movement, about the events of the period from 1638 into the Cromwellian occupation is that it did create, and this is Laura Stewart's sort of idea, but I agree with her, this sort of imagined national community that was reinforced just through the communal process of swearing the covenants. And in places like Ayr, going beyond swearing those covenants to constantly reminding the community of their membership in this covenant. And this imagined community, it was not just national, right? But I also think it helped to sort of cement certain aspects of regional communities and local parish communities. So I think you have a potentially a revolution in terms of people's political participation, awareness of membership in this community. But as I say, it's really uneven and it's not consistent chronologically either. So in air, yes, there was a Scottish revolution. But is that something you can say was regionally consistent? I don't think that you necessarily can. But but I think the covenants did something, and I think they they mattered quite a lot um, in that way, particularly because of that sort of communal act of of swearing, not once but twice. I think that that meant quite a lot. So this has been a wonderful talk, and I really really enjoyed it. If the listeners want to read more of your work, do you have any current projects you're working on? I do. So I've got a couple of things in the hopper, as we would say. I don't know if that that phrase translates, but I don't even know if I know what it means. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I have, I have a couple of projects going on. Um, I am co-director with uh, Chris Langley of um, Mapping the Scottish Reformation, which is a database and a visualization tool to learn more about the careers of the Scottish clergy from the Reformation. Reformation 1562. Uh, here's that other phrase, revolution of 1689. A brilliant resource. Absolutely amazing. Thank you. Well, we're working on that. Um, I'm currently writing a book on, um, on air and on its minister, William Adair, um, and basically on Protestant self-fashioning amid these interlocking crises of the 17th century. So that book will be coming out with Manchester University Press. Um, uh, you heard it here. I haven't said that anywhere else. Um, so the, the title of that will be uh, Plagues of the Heart, Piety, Crisis, and Community in 17th Century Scotland. Um, so I'm working on that book. It'll be a couple of years till that's out. And I'm also editing a, a collection with some colleagues on um, the history of the devil. So the Rutledge history of the devil in the Western tradition. I'm, I'm co-editing that as well. So I'm particularly interested in that history of the devil. I find the history of witchcraft particularly interesting, which is why I did an entire second podcast on it. So. Oh, fabulous. Well, there will be there will be witches in the book. Air has some course. witches, so, you know, listen. Every good book has witches. Indeed. That's what I tell my students, every good class. Just throw it in there. <laughs> Dr. Mickey Brook, thank you so much for your time. This has been super fascinating. Thank you.